0: Good morning, friends. Hey, my name is Perry. I'm part of the Boulder campus staff. I'm one of the pastors there. Pastor Zach is away today, so I get to be here to continue on and worship with you all this morning. What a beautiful day to be in the Lord's house together, to open up God's word together as we worship now. Have you ever found yourself staring at something for a while and you weren't quite sure what you were looking at? There's a man named Victor whose story I came across recently. And at a young age, when he was a toddler, Victor lost his sight. An eye problem had developed and it had robbed him so that his world went dark. And later on in his life, though, decades later, he had the opportunity to participate in a groundbreaking eye procedure. And following that surgery, the surgeons were removing the wraps from his eyes, the bandages, and they said, what can you see? What do you see? Is a question only he could answer. Now, the thing about his life is that he had learned to just touch things sequentially in order to make sense of the world around him. That's how he perceived what was actually around in his environment, in the room that he was in. But now he had this onslaught of information, of visual information, coming into his brain, and his brain didn't know what to do with it, how to process it all. And so because of that, he said, I don't know. Something's wrong. This can't be seeing. Now, over time, over time, he would learn how to see. His brain would be able to process it and make sense of his life. But there's something like that going on for us as we step into Revelation chapter 4 this morning, where we have to learn all over again how to see, to see the way that John saw things. If you go back to chapter 1, I have it on the screen here, but in verses 10 and 11, this is how the whole vision started for John. He said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So these last two weeks, we've been looking at the messages to each of those seven churches. And what we saw there is that each of them was facing challenges in their own situation, in their own location, challenges to faithfulness. And in some cases, they were compromising because of the pressures of the day that they were in, because of the attractions and the lures of the society that they were a part of. But the overarching issue is one of faithfulness. So we no longer are going to be reading about and to the church in Ephesus write this or and to the church of Laodicea write that. Instead we have one single message for all seven of those churches that will take us all the way from Revelation 4 to Revelation 22. So the question we might want to ask ourselves then is what do they need to hear in order to live faithful lives in the midst of compromise? Or We might say, what do they need to see? Let's look now at Revelation chapter 4. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there. I will have some of the scripture up here on the screen as well. Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 begins this way. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So it's remarkable that the first thing he sees is a door to heaven. That's not an everyday occurrence. But not only that, but he sees a door that's standing open. It's an open access opportunity into heaven. I have a background of being in the military. I was on active duty for eight years. I went to a military college. I know what it's like to be in an environment with a chain of command. Some of you may be in the corporate world or may have government jobs or part of any large organization. You know that you can't just waltz into anybody's office at any time. You can't just approach the CEO of a company and strike up a conversation whenever you want to. There's a limited access to very important people, but John here is seeing an open door into heaven, and it says that he hears the first voice. The first voice is the voice that we just read about back in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. It's the voice of Jesus, and the voice says, come up here. I'll show you what must take place. Not what might take place, what could take place, what ought to take place, but what must take place. Because this is the divine will of God. And it must take place after this. Some people take after this in different ways. I think it most clearly just points as a marker to this is the next phase of John's revelation. He had the revelation to the seven churches and those messages. And now after this, there's more. There's more that follows. So again, picking up now in verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So John is instructed to come up here That makes sense if you're Moses being told to come up onto the top of Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord. But here it doesn't make that kind of sense. There's no mountain to climb. But he's being instructed to come up here anyways. And it says that John was in the Spirit. In the Spirit is just code language for the kind of writing that we are reading here. An apocalyptic vision. An apocalyptic vision means that the curtain of our world is being pulled back to reveal an even deeper, greater reality on the other side. So John is having this spiritual encounter, this spiritual vision to reveal what heaven looks like. And it says that once he's in there, he finds a throne, not a waiting room, not a lobby, not a TSA security line. But a throne. He's immediately into a place with a throne. That should tell us about what heaven is like. There's a throne where a powerful being sits. There's a throne where judgments are made. There's a throne where someone receives homage. There's a throne in the heavenlies. And the one seated on it, it says that he who sat there had the appearance of, and we might just think, Yes, I'm going to finally get to hear about the shape of God's nose. I'm going to know about what color of eyes God has or how long his hair is. He says he has the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne is a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Jasper, carnelian, emeralds, these are precious stones, precious jewels. And if you know anything about precious jewels in the Bible, then you know that they show up in some pretty important places. In Genesis chapter 2, when the land of Eden is described, it's described as having precious stones. If you go to the book of Exodus, where the, the high priest's garments are described, the breastplate of the high priest is, has 12 precious stones embedded into it, representing the 12 tribes. The first... Is jasper. The 12th is carnelian. These are stones of orange, red, sometimes green, vibrant colors. And then John says that there's this rainbow that surrounds the throne and it appears as an emerald, another precious stone. The rainbow pointing in all of its vibrant colors to the promise that God made to humanity to never again wipe the, the world out with a flood. All of this is on vivid display. It's radiance, it's majesty, and that's the whole point. John is not describing the physical characteristics of God. John is describing the majesty of God. Majesty is something that's better experienced than explained. But John is attempting to explain what probably defies explanation when he's describing God's majesty that he encounters when he walks across into the heavenlies and encounters the throne. He goes on and he says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So right here, we read about these 24, and we read that they're clothed in white, and they have crowns on their heads, and the elders are people who have authority. They've been given some kind of responsibility, and being clothed in white represents the fact that these are, these are beings who are pure. These are beings who are victorious, and the golden crown on their head just reinforces that. The word used for crown here is the word used to describe what an athlete would receive after a successful victory in an athletic contest. So these beings are represented with white garments, the garments of purity and victory and crowns on their head. And on top of that, It says, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. All of these images are just piling up on top of each other. And we might just wonder, like Virgil, how do I see and make sense of all of this? The 24th. Elders have been subject of a lot of discussion in terms of what these beings represent, who they are. There are a number number of different possibilities. I think most likely are two options. One is that they represent, they are spiritual beings in the heavenlies who represent all of God's people. Twelve would be representative of the tribes of Israel. The other twelve would be representative of the apostles all of them being heavenly beings representing God's people in the heavenlies. Another option, though, is that the priests, the Levites, were broken into 24 different divisions. It's possible, as well, that these 24 could represent those 24 different divisions of Levitical priests that served in and around the temple area. Whatever they are, we see that they're surrounded by these Fantastic displays of flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. This reminds us of Exodus. Back in Exodus chapter 19, when Israel is encamped around Mount Sinai, it says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. There's nothing here that tells us directly that John himself is trembling in this vision but we would not blame him if he is. This is this display of the majesty of God. And then he says, before the throne, we're burning these seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We saw this already in Revelation one time. I think the most likely explanation for this is this is representative of the Holy Spirit. Seven is the number of perfection or completion. When you combine that with the spirits of God, I believe what we're talking about here is the Holy Spirit. And what we're seeing here is the Trinity on display. We have, on one hand, we have the one who is on the throne, who's not even named, not even identified, but the one who is on the throne in all of his majesty. We have Jesus who has given access to the heavenly throne room. And we have before the throne, the seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit, all in the heavenly throne room. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. The sea in the ancient mind was a place of chaos, a place of danger, a place of disorder. You think of the creation account. It's of God separating the waters from themselves the waters above from the waters below, and then creating dry land by separating the waters below. But whatever this represents, we see that the sea is no chaotic mess here in the throne room of heaven. The sea is completely ordered. It's like glass. And not only that, but it has this, again, this picture of value and worth because it's glass like crystal. Glass in John's day was incredibly expensive, and the clearer it was, the more expensive it was. But here we see this sea of glass, like crystal, around the throne. This is the majesty of God on display. Let's just step back for a moment, because one of the commitments we made to each other at the start of this series was that we would not divide over the details. So who are the 24 elders? We're not going to divide over that. What exactly does the sea of glass represent? We're not going to divide over that. But what we are going to do is be firmly committed to what is most clear. And what is most clear in these first verses of chapter 4 is that the throne room of heaven is the place where God's majesty is fully displayed. The throne room of heaven is where God's majesty is fully displayed. In John's day, there were majestic visual sights all around him. I think it's likely that the Roman emperor Domitian was the Roman emperor at the time that this was written. Domitian was known for having 24 bodyguards who accompanied him and protected him. Domitian was also known for having priests who would flank him when he was out in public. And what did they wear on their heads? Golden crowns. This is not some kind of coincidence. But this is intentionally trying to portray a contrast between the claims to majesty that the Roman emperor had that all of these seven churches would have been familiar with and the majesty of the throne room of heaven as being the true place of ultimate majesty. I wonder, where do we see majesty in our own world? Well, I did what any good pastor would have done, and even generations past, I asked chat GPT. (laughs) Here's what chat GPT told me to the simple question, what do Americans think is majestic? Here's what it spit out for me. It said mountains, national parks, waterfalls, iconic cities, wildlife, natural phenomena like solar eclipses, meteor showers, historical sites, grand architecture, national monuments, and natural beauty, forests, lakes, coastlines, places like that. I think it's remarkable that so many of these are taken directly from creation, from the natural world, that God's majesty is just on display on our planet like that. As I think about standing in the Yosemite Valley and just turning around and looking at all of the marvels around me, I think, yeah, that's majestic. Looking out at the Rocky Mountains out of our window, of course, is majestic. I think about standing on the very rim of the Grand Canyon and looking over the edge, that's majestic. But what's not on the list is also noteworthy to me. I wonder for Americans, if it's difficult for us to appreciate the majesty of a king as we live in a democracy, I wonder if it's possible that not only that, we we don't just live in a democracy, but we are a democracy specifically because we don't want a king. We rebelled against a throne room. That's our history. So for us to think of the majesty of a king, it's a little bit of a challenge. And not only that, but we do live in a society that is celebrity-crazed. And I wonder sometimes if we might confuse celebrity with majesty, but I don't think they're the same thing. Celebrity causes us to run up and want to approach somebody, to try to get their attention, maybe make eye contact, and even get an autograph or a selfie with them. Majesty, though, majesty calls for a very different kind of of response from us. To see that, let's keep reading. In the second half of verse 6, it says this, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. You thought it was weird before? This is a whole new level. It's a whole new level. It's, it's likely that these are mirror images of what we see in other places like Ezekiel, which also contains a heavenly image. Isaiah 6 is another passage, and we'll actually turn there in a moment, not yet, but we'll look at that as well, where we see similar imagery representing the throne room of heaven there. But John describes these creatures that are full of eyes in in front and behind. It's likely that that represents just their awareness of what's happening that there's nothing that escapes what's going on, just like mom who had eyes in the back of her head. These beings don't miss anything. It could perhaps also signify their wisdom that they operate with. But it says that the first living creature is like a lion, the second an ox, the third the face of a man, and the fourth like an eagle in flight. These are somehow spiritual beings that are representative of life on earth. I like the explanation of one commentator who says that these are whatever is noblest, whatever is strongest, whatever is wisest and swiftest in animal nature, animate nature, excuse me. So these living beings are there around the throne, perhaps even under the throne. And they are in the the heavenly realm with all of their marvel, all of their wonder, And although we might want to know more about exactly who they are, the most important thing is not their identity, but their activity. And what their activity is, is this. It says, The four living creature, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So John just adds a layer of complexity to this image in our minds by saying that they have six wings, three pairs of wings. This should remind us again of Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6. This is not on the screen, but let me just read this to you. It says in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, which are these spiritual creatures. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's a similar refrain as what we hear here from John's account. But what's remarkable to me is that Isaiah then goes on to describe his own experience of being in the presence of this spectacle. And what he says in verse 5, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Celebrity is somebody we might run towards, like the paparazzi, but majesty is something that causes an entirely different response. Majesty, if anything, might cause us to want to keep our, keep our distance. Majesty takes our breath away. We don't want to cry out for attention, but instead we want to be silent. We tremble in the majesty of God. These four living creatures, though, they... They call out and they say, holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty. We sang about this earlier this morning, but holiness conveys the idea of being set apart, that God is entirely different from every other thing. God is holy in the sense that he's set apart in his morality. God is set apart in being completely free of any sin, There's no blemish, morally speaking, or in any other way with God. God is completely holy, and the fact that it's repeated three times just drives it home with greater emphasis. Holy, holy, holy is God. Not only that, but he is the Lord God Almighty. This is a God who is sovereign. This is a God who is in ultimate control of all things. Daniel 2 verse 21 is not on our screen, but it says, this is the one who changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. This is what God is like in all of his sovereignty. These seven churches lived in a day where the Roman Empire claimed to be sovereign over them. The Roman Empire claimed to be in the place that we see represented here in the heavenlies. But John is here correcting all of that with this vision by describing that, no, no, no. There's only one on the throne who is holy, who is the Lord God Almighty, and he who was and is and is to come. It points to the fact that this is a God who is eternal. There was never a time when God was not. There will never be a time when God will not be. God is non-contingent. He is uncreated. God depends on no one or no thing for his existence. The Roman empire is gone. Caesar is dead. So when you combine these images, we see that God is being praised in heaven because he is without peer in his nature, he's without peer in his power, and he is without nature, without peer rather in his existence. He is eternal. So the throne room of heaven is the place where God's majesty is displayed. And it's the place where God's worship is proclaimed. This is what takes place in the heavenlies. God's worship is proclaimed by these beings. And it gives us insight into what our response ought to be as well. His worship is proclaimed because it's motivated by His majesty. And it's proclaimed because it's a response to His worthiness. One scholar has said this, Craig Keener, he says, only in the depths of worship as we stand in awe of God's majestic glory do all other competing claims for affection and attention recede into their rightful place. God alone is God, and He alone merits first place. Beyond every other love, every other anxiety, every other fear that consumes us. This is who our God is. When we glimpse into the throne room of heaven, all of our lives come into focus. This is the response we are to have to this God of ours who we're seeing revealed in His throne room. It says this in Verse 9, "...and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, "...worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they, they existed and were created." This is what the throne room of God reveals to us that these creatures who are worshiping all the time, celebrating the holiness, celebrating the sovereignty, celebrating the very eternal nature of God, that when they do that, the 24 elders respond as well by laying down their crowns and bowing before the throne. Why? Because He's worthy. He is worthy. Why would the seven churches who are struggling with faithfulness need to be reminded of the worthiness of God? Can I suggest that we need to be reminded of the same thing in our own lives? That it's when we grasp the worthiness of God that all of the rest of our lives come into focus. We understand the highs and the lows that we experience. We understand better the temptations to compromise that we might encounter. But when we understand the majesty of God and his worthiness, that brings everything else into perspective like nothing else can do. That's why they're being shown this vivid display of God's power, his glory, his honor, and the worthiness that is ascribed to him by all of these creatures in heaven. The throne room of God is the place that encourages the faithful. It's also the place, though, that warns the compromising. Those who are compromising need to see this vision just as much so that they will understand that they're compromising for a lesser power. They're compromising for the Roman emperor. They're compromising for their own comfort in their life so that they might be more economically affluent. But what the throne room reminds them of is who is truly worthy, who's worthy of praise, who's worthy of honor, who's worthy of glory. Michael Gorman is another New Testament scholar who says, The worship of God is the heartbeat of the cosmos. Even when we humans on earth do not see it, participate in it, or value it, Only God is worthy to receive what others, especially powerful political figures, may want or demand, our total devotion, our praise, our crowns. Only God is worthy of that, and worship is the heartbeat of the cosmos. God is worthy because He is the one who created all things, and it's by His will that they exist and were created. Let me just ask, Why are we here this morning? One way we might answer that, we are here because it's God's will that we exist. Why are we here this morning? We're here to acknowledge the worthiness of Him who sits on the throne. When we understand that, when we see the throne room of heaven, all of the rest of our lives comes into focus. I don't know what what challenges you might be facing. I don't know where you might be struggling to live faithful lives this morning. But let this vision from John of the the majesty, the wonder, the worthiness of God be your encouragement to follow him faithfully. Because once our lives come into focus, we can follow him faithfully. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the grace of your word that reveals your truth to us. Lord, thank you that we can gather together like this in Thornton, Colorado as your body to open up your word and to understand, Lord, something of your majesty in the heavenly realm. That we can get a glimpse of the glory that enthrones you, Lord, the spectacle of your majesty, the worship of the creatures around you, the heavenly beings who see you clearly. Father, I pray we would see you more clearly. I pray, Lord, that we would understand, Lord, that you are worthy of all praise. You're worthy of all honor. You're worthy of all glory. Would you give us the strength by your spirit, Lord, to be able to live in a way that is faithful? God, give us the strength so that we would live a life that is worthy of all you have done for us. Father, that's worthy of the fact that you're the creator, that we exist by your will. And Lord, as your people, we want our worship to be worthy of your name. So would you just give us your grace in each one of these ways? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.